Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Redzink. Today we talk with geographer Terrence Young about his award-winning book, Heading Out, A History of American Camping. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. Terrence Young is a professor emeritus of geography from California State Polytechnic University. His book that we'll talk about today, Heading Out, A History of American Camping, was published by Cornell University Press in 2017. In 2018, the book won the Hal K. Rothman Award from the Western History Association for the best book in Western environmental history. That's where I heard about the book and immediately wanted a chance to read it. I had a lot of fun with this book, both as a historian and as a lover of the outdoors and camping. Young expertly balances engaging stories and narratives about American camping and how it's developed with various broad themes and explorations into what it reveals about American culture and social histories. Young traces American camping from the mid-19th century up to the present, not in a comprehensive fashion, but by diving into key moments of development, from its inception, the growth of national parks, automobiles and camper trailers, the management and design of campgrounds, backpacking and long-distance trail networks, all of these things provide moments for young and us as the reader to observe and learn. Personally, I was struck by how many historical moments, experiences, and debates were identical to the camping experiences of my own life. In finding myself throughout the history of American camping, I'm now left to pause and reconsider my own experiences, what they mean to me, and also how I plan to continue camping in the future. If you have been or still are a camper, I promise you will have a similar introspective experience with Young's book. I encourage you to pick it up. Professor Terrence Young, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And you are recording from California, correct? That's right. Are you having ni- nice weather out there? Uh, it's quite lovely today. It's quite raining. Is it is it ca- camping season yet? Oh, I could be uh, in the desert. <laughs> or when is it ever not camping season? Maybe that's the question. <laughs> maybe the older we get, the uh, the shorter that season gets for what we're willing to put up with, maybe. I know uh, growing up as a kid, we camped every month, rain or shine, and I grew up in northwest Washington, so it wasn't always shine, And uh, but we we toughed it out. Um, we're going to move through a bunch of, well, I think through like m- most of the big topics in your book, uh, which I, I had to say I had so much fun reading. Thank you. As a historian, I I generally have fun reading history, but this was particularly entertaining for me. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of your personal background 
as a camper? Sure. Um, like you, my parents, uh, I grew up in Southern California in Los Angeles area, and uh, my parents had moved to Southern California from Minnesota. And uh, I think well, they came for a lot, the same reasons a lot of people come for jobs and things like that. But also, I think they really enjoyed the climate uh, compared to what they had experienced at uh, home. Yeah. And we spent many, many, many weekends uh, camping on the coastline, uh, Santa Barbara County coastline, in what were once private campgrounds and are now uh, state park campgrounds. And I, they started taking me camping anyway when I was six months old. Uh, so they were avid campers uh, long before I was born, and they weren't about to slow down simply because they had a baby. Uh, <laughs> and they just kept going, and we went to that Santa Barbara coast hundreds of times, it seems to me, over my childhood. My father was happy to go, uh, you know, like you had said, he'd go every every couple of weeks, you know, and off we'd head, and we went with lots of friends, my a lot of my mother's friends and stuff. And then uh, mostly that's where we went. But occasionally we went to uh, Sequoia National Park, which was our favorite national park. And then uh, Yosemite, uh, occasionally, not very often, just a couple of times, I think. And then when I became uh, a teenager and uh, into college, uh, I went camping a lot with friends, sometimes backpacking, sometimes car camping, but we went quite a bit. So, and I've just continued with that uh, right up to uh, you know recently. So, so this has always been there's there's never been a time in your life where you were not camping. That's right. You you yeah. you, you knew how to camp before you knew how to walk. I did. It's, literally. Uh, yeah. 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 Literally. <laughs> At the very beginning of your book, I mentioned this to you earlier, but um, you say, as you're kind of introducing uh, American camping, you say, but camping is not a universally attractive leisure activity. And I read this and immediately thought of this bit that the comedian Jim Gaffigan does about camping and about how not everyone loves camping. And so um, I want to take a second and just listen to this quick little um, clip from his King Baby stand-up special. So I just want to listen to this really quick and then get your reaction. Okay. I went camping recently for this next joke, and <laughs> I married a woman who loves to camp, and I am what you would call indoorsy. I'm surprised we can still get people to camp. Hey, want to burn a couple of vacation days sleeping on the ground outside? Uh, no. What if I told you to get the crap standing up in the woods? I still wouldn't want to go. You wake up freezing, covered in a rash. All right, I'll go. My wife always brings up, camping's a tradition in my family. Hey, it was a tradition in everyone's family till we came up with a house. My parents never took me camping. You know why? Because they loved me. It'll get you closer to nature. I want to keep the relationship professional. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So you wrote a book about camping, and I have to assume that people either react enthusiastically because they love camping or enthusiastically because they hate camping. H how do you kind of respond to this, to, to Gaffigan's thoughts, or maybe other feedback you've gotten from non-campers? Uh, well, I, I would say that uh, you know, 
the majority of, of uh, as I said in, in the book, universally, there's no particular appeal to camping. Even in America, uh, the majority of people probably have never camped and may not be in any way particularly interested in it. And I understand that. But I would say the, the reason uh, a lot of people go camping is <clears throat> they're, they are attracted to and uncomfortable in wilder places. And and the opposite of what uh, Jim Gaffigan is saying is they're not comfortable at home. They're not comfortable in the city, even though he is. Mm. And uh, it's it's uh, you know it's an express. I think camping is an expression of sort of uh, discomfort, uh, dissatisfaction, uncertainty about urban life in general. Uh, but certainly not everyone's going to feel that way. I would I would have been surprised if everybody was a camper. Yeah. So, that's interesting. I know that if I don't get out into the mountains every so often, I, I start to – I can feel it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the our trails here are sl- slowly starting to melt out, and there's more dirt than snow, and I can feel the itch. Um, and I can feel the need to kind of get out of the city. Uh, but I've never thought of it that way in that – in the same way that some people find discomfort in being in the outdoors. Um, the people who love the outdoors maybe do so because they have discomfort – when they're in in the city, that's I've, right. ne- I've never conceived of it that way. Uh, well, that's I I have to give credit uh, to uh, a colleague and a good friend, uh, Jeffrey Stein, who is at the National Museum of American History, and he was the first person just to suggest that well maybe Terry, um, the reason people are going camping isn't because they want to go to nature, but rather. They they want to get out of the city, and I just sort of took this as like, well, that's an interesting comment, and didn't think about it. But I have to say, over the years of research, that is exactly what I found. So it's not just the pull of nature; it's the push of the city. It is, yeah, and I think that helps to explain why all of these people can be going to different kinds of places, camping in different ways, and still all think they're camping. Uh, because really what they're go- doing is they share a, uh, a place they're getting away from. Yeah, that's what they share, not where they're yes. going to, not or how they're going, going there, or what they're experiencing there. It's what exactly. they're escaping. That's yes. that's kind of the opposite of how I think most everyone thinks about the topic. Mm-hmm. No, I I did too. <laughs> you know, at the beginning. Yeah. Well, in your book, you 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 go through a series of kind of the big. It's you, as you say, it's not a comprehensive history of American camping, but you take kind of these dives into important moments when there were big developments in, uh, you know, in the world of camping in America, you know, from this move to get away from 19th century cities to motor camping with cars to trailers. Um, and you eventually move that and, and, you know, kind of managed campgrounds and you move that up eventually to backpacking and uh, some of these long trail things people do. And then you, mm-hmm. um, but but throughout this chronology, you circle around the three themes of modernization, and how camping is in some ways a reaction to that, camping as a pilgrimage of sorts, and camping in its relation to technological change and development. And so I thought maybe, since those are kind of the big three themes that you weave throughout the chronology of your seven or eight chapters, maybe we could dive into those three themes and then kind of sample from all over the book. Sure. The first of these three themes is modernization, and this is what you kind of already already mentioned about maybe the the shared experiences 
people trying to get away from the modern world to some degree um, mm-hmm. as they go out camping. Can you give us a little kind of the thumbnail sketch of um, the summer of 69, not the summer of 69 that most everyone else is familiar with, <laughs> but the summer of 1869 um, with William H.H. H. Murray and this book he wrote about the Adirondacks called Adventures in the Wilderness, because you peg this as the beginning of American camping. Yes, um, people there, people had been going into the woods uh, of uh, the Atlantic states and New York in particular for uh, years uh, at uh, in, in whatever prior to 1869, but after the Civil War, actually during and immediately before and during the Civil War and afterwards, uh, industrialization and urbanization really takes off in the northeastern part of the United States, and we just have just tremendous numbers of people who are moving into cities or are born in cities, but there's now many more people in cities. And they're uncomfortable. Uh, you know, with, this is the era of big park making begins with people like Olmsted mm-hmm. is, is exactly the same era. And, uh, Murray, uh, William H. H. Murray, it was a Congregationalist minister from Boston. He wrote this book, uh, as you said, Adventures in the Wilderness. And, uh, what made his book distinct or unique from previous people who had talked about going in the woods was that he not only praised nature and he was very romantic in his, in his, you know, glory of God in the woods and glorious skies and these sort of things. And that, that wasn't but a new thing. Lots of other that people have been doing that. Yeah. 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 That was, that was, that goes back, you know, at least 50 or more years by 1869. Um, but what Murray did do was he actually told people a how to do this which nobody had done before. So he talks about equipment and clothing and food and this sort of thing. Uh, he talks about hiring uh, guides and the value of them. Uh, and then he tells people where to best camp. And that's in the Adirondacks, um, in the lakes of uh, the Adirondacks. And um, it's it's what people needed. It was one thing to say it's glorious, it's lovely, but not tell anyone how to do it or where to go versus this, this man who came out and said, yes, it's glorious and lovely, but here's what you do. You take the train to Lake Cham- or up to Lake Champlain or Champagne and then, or Champlain and then over take this ferry and go along this route and get, and end up uh, in the Adirondacks and uh, you're going to have a great time. <laughs> it's, it's something of a sensation, right? Oh, it's an enormous sensation. Yeah. It's, Previous before 1869, the region where Murray described literally over the course of the season got maybe a hundred people showed up, you know, from uh, Hartford and Boston and New York. And the the summer of 1869 and the summer of 1870, which are collectively referred to as Murray's Rush, uh, they got thousands, probably mm-hmm. uh, perhaps 10,000 people showed up. Uh, and just overwhelmed these places. And what, what I thought is fascinating is from that very moment, we have this marriage of, you know, the camping wilderness experience with tourism and industry and, you know, commercial interest, right, from from day one. Because then you have guides and outfitters and people running lodges and I mean, just just from, from I mean, I don't, I don't want to call it like a camping industrial complex, you know, to, to borrow from a 
Dwight D. Eisenhower's military industrial complex. But from day one, this movement, which is kind of an anti-modernization movement or trying to get away from the city and get away from all those things, mm-hmm. is immediately recombined with some of those very elements that were making cities grow, right? That's um, right. No, no, there's an irony at the at the core of camping uh always is that it is an escape from modernity and it is facilitated by modernity yeah yeah i mean this and this is that tension right about roughing it yes and this is the debate that i know i've had with my wife and i think many other camping enthusiasts have had with their friends right this debate of how rough does it have to get right and how much of modern conveniences do we bring with us do we have like a 50 foot rv where we bring the you know Everything but the kitchen. I know there even is a kitchen sink, right? You, you bring oh, the yes. whole the whole house with you, or do we need to impose some kind of austerity to make it? I mean, it's it's an authenticity argument, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. What is the authentic experience of nature? Uh, how should it be? Uh, to what degree can it be mediated through technology and still be? the proper experience i mean we're talking about a a sort of ritual uh, and and there are ritual elements to camping camp campfires doing things like that and cooking outdoors and this sort of thing and that if you if you remove some of them because they are uncomfortable sleeping on the ground can be you know really uncomfortable i admit it um but whether or not that's acceptable or, or necessary is, I think, at the heart of a lot of disdain that you hear from uh-huh. some tent campers, <laughs> say, you know, sneering at a Winnebago, as Jim Gaffigan does in his uh, bit. You know, and it's like, yeah, well, that's because they believe that the, the Winnebago's level, Winnebago campers' level of uh, whatever, modernization and equipment is just, you know, improper. Yeah. And you I know... know- for as silly as that sounds, and I know it's silly, like I mean, when I grew up camping, we didn't even use tents; we just used tarps. We were we'd have tarps and rope, and we'd string them up all over, and we had a great time, right? Like no gear almost. But now, as I go camping with my family and kids, and you know, we go camping with someone, and they have a really fancy tent or really fancy like air mat, like fancy mattresses, and I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. But then <laughs> I think, ah, oh, that would be nice, though, wouldn't it? We had yes. a little bit more comfortable mattress, and um, I don't know if that's a function of age or I don't know. Maybe it's maybe as youth we're willing to put up with more, but I feel this tension within myself. And even while I recognize how silly it is to be thinking about authenticity, I can't get away from that feeling that oh, I'm ruining the experience somehow by by having like a plug-in site with electricity at a campground. Well, and I I think uh, the the. The reality is that these things are at some sort of uh, unconsidered level amongst you and me. You know, and your, your comment is like, well, that's silly, but, you know, gosh, it might not be that bad. At the same time, these these are issues about what's proper, and they rise when, when there's a discussion about how a campground or a camping area like a national park is to be managed, uh, these kind of unconsidered but you know, sincerely held attitudes kind of come out in terms of trying to shape policy. Yeah, so then it has real impact, yeah. Yes, and the Park Service will tell you, you know, that their bigger fights that they end up spending a lot of time on are not somebody coming to try to drill inside of Yosemite. No, they're going to spend a lot more time sitting with people who are arguing over whether or not the campground should have trailer sites or not. 
Or how yeah. far away should the sites be from the bathroom? Or... Yes, this sort of thing. <laughs> Amongst the people who who sincerely believe these things are important. And, you yeah. know, and I, I understand they are for them. But um, they are not um, real threats to the parks. <laughs> well, the reason I bring this up is this is one thing that surprised me in your book is that I – I would have, if you had said, well, when, when do you, hey, Brennan, when do you think that these questions of authenticity spring up? I would have said, oh, probably, you know, when people start getting RVs and campers and trailers and things like that. But you say that in 1869, from the very moment of Murray's rush, there are mm -hmm. people hemming and hawing and wringing their hands about all of these amateur, inauthentic campers from the city coming out and not having the real experience. That's that, right. That shocked me. Yes, and and they and the, I I was surprised to find that their term of uh, you know dismissal is their tourists. <laughs> I mean, so little has changed. It's the it's the exact same conversation we're having today, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I I think you're right. And authenticity is at the core of a lot of this kind of activity, leisure activities. People are looking for something authentic. And I guess. I mean, the the way we were trying to frame this all is, is about your modernization theme. So a key part of that authentic experience is the almost like the ascetic um, kind of denial of modern convenience, right? And that yes. that that's kind of the the entry point to having this authentic experience is this anti-modern um, kind of a conscious decision, right? Like we have these conveniences, we could bring them with us, but we are going to sacrifice them. That's right. The one quote that kind of jumped out to me was from I think it was from the Craftsman. Is that like was that kind of a trade magazine? Uh, uh yes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was a nineteen nineteen thirteen author in that magazine talking about all the equipment and gear and all these things that that they help get people out there. That by having these conveniences, it gets people out into nature that maybe wouldn't go otherwise. And then you say that it, it does so by allowing the camper to calculate in advance how much comfort and roughness would be part of a camping trip. Mm -hmm. um, which seems like a very modern impulse, right? Or yes. That we just have to be able to plan things out and have it be predictable, and and gear and conveniences allow us to to bring a little bit of predictability to what is otherwise a really chaotic or potentially chaotic experience. Oh yeah, I mean we have to understand most of the people who have ever taken up camping not not like me or you who grew up camping but in some point in their adult life decided to take it up which is of course the the condition of many of the people in the 19th and early 20th centuries they don't have this experience um for them <clears throat> you know it it is a chaotic thing for them it is uncertain they don't know how to do all of these these sort of things they they are urban people and uh, I think we have to not forget that if you grew up in New York City in 1875 and lived on Manhattan, you don't have any more experience of rural life or the wild than somebody today who lives on Manhattan and yeah. grew up there. You know, they didn't know what it was about. So it was uh, – And maybe even less experience. I mean we're much more mobile today than yes. they were then. Yes, yeah. So you can, you know, you and I can at least we could, you know, say, oh, okay, let's drive to the Adirondacks yeah, yeah. or something, and we could do it in a day. And they couldn't. I mean, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to this at at the end. Um, but I thought one other kind of ironic point you make, which is in kind of this modernization theme, is that one of the possible reasons that there's been a recent decline in camping 
is maybe that all of those urban modern things that we were trying to get away from or like you know what made cities horrible like cities aren't quite so horrible anymore like there That's are right. there are nice they're often nice green urban spaces and so maybe that modern modernization is less threatening or less of something that we're trying to escape because the modern city sometimes is nice yes and i think um it uh, if camping uh, you know i i you know i i mean i'm speculating on what things i think's happening but if i'm correct i there's a positive aspect to that you know that people should no longer feel that where they actually live and where they live uh, extensively is uh, not so horrible you know and uh that's that's a good thing you know it's uh, rather than thinking well we live here but we don't really belong here this isn't really our place uh sort of like bill cronin's you know the trouble mm. with wilderness is is this idea that we're not really going to accept where we are uh, but that's okay because we still have the wild out there. Well, I, I would say if camping actually declines because people are accepting where they are and thinking it's okay, you know, and they're greening it up and making it more of a blend of nature and culture, that's a good thing. Um, let's, let's shift over to your, this idea of a pilgrimage and how camping evolves at various points as a pilgrimage. And you define, you say a pilgrim is someone who leaves home journeys to a sacred place as an act of devotion and returns home changed. How, how do you trace that idea from 1869? I mean, all the way up to, I mean, you talk about backpacking, modern backpacking as, as pilgrimage. How does this idea evolve in American history? Well, Amer <clears throat> Americans have a, uh, a long history of sort of reverse, well, if I, let me say it this way, traditional uh, Western European pilgrimage if you will, and uh, is people going to some special religious site like Lourdes or something like this. And these sites were outside of um, uh, the places where people generally lived. And then they built up into being sort of urbanish places. And I think to service that tourist. Uh, yes. Pilgrimage tourism, right? Yes, yes. And, and when you look at the anthropology of tourism and, and pilgrimage, they'll, the anthropologists will tell you it's really hard to tell who is a pilgrim, who is a tourist, and when they're which at what moment. Because people can be deeply pilgrimage or deeply religious and at the same time buy some, you know, tchotchke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to remind them of that, you know, which is a very touristic sort of thing to do. So, you know, it's hard to distinguish them. America founded by uh, and, th and this pattern in Western European history is is Roman Catholic and in America founded by a Protestant uh, based whatever culture had rejected this kind of overt pilgrimage. And I think it popped out. Pilgrimage is universal. I mean, it's across the planet and uh, it popped out in America in this idea of of returning to uh Whatever, more rural places. And so we get, um, oh, uh, whatever religious, uh, people going into the woods to have a, a revival and mm -hmm. stuff like this, or people going to cemeteries, uh, and uh, having a picnic with their families or rural picnics and things like this. These are, these are already present in America when camping starts. And I think camping is one more of that kind of pattern in our culture, which is, you know, the city's really not where we're supposed to be in some way. 
it's a, it's profane. It's it's something we accept. We're not fools. We understand that's where the jobs are and wealth is created and a lot of that. But it's it's a really a profane place. The sacred place, the sacred center, is out there. It's out in away from these places. That's why. The title of the book is Heading Out, mm-hmm. is uh, going out to these places. And people do feel this. Uh, they get out to, to the woods. I, I can say it for myself. Maybe you felt it too. Yeah. I leave town for a week, uh, go uh, camping, uh, and then I come back, and I feel much better. Well, that's you know the change. You know, uh, As one anthropologist or sociologist once described pilgrimage, it's in, out, in with a difference. Uh, it's where you are most of the time is in, then you depart uh, to wherever, uh, and then you come back and you're changed in, in a positive way. And I think that's really captures what camping is, sort of, you know, without giving any details. Can you think of some good examples of how, and kind of moving beyond the Murray period, but, you know, into the 20th century, how camping enthusiasts or the camping industry that's making gear and stuff kind of invokes this this idea as a way to promote the activity? Well, there's a, a, an enormous amount of reference to uh, the frontier. The whole idea of the, the, the frontier is a place where our ancestors uh, became American. Oh man, we can't escape the ghost of Frederick Jackson Turner, can we? <laughs> never, never. Oh man. Well, as even Western, he was as Western historians, you know. <laughs> but it, it it permeates camping. Yeah. Uh, and you can see it in modern advertising. Uh, you know, I, I. Could you explain really quick, maybe for listeners who weren't forced to uh, talk about Frederick Jackson Turner, kind of what this Turner thesis is and how, you know, he argues that the frontier is what made America America. Can you give us a thirty second? grad school uh, synopsis turner turner argued that people came from other parts of the world uh or and and they were not americans they went into the wilderness as you think of it as a kind of region or place or something which is a wild place and in that place they're transformed and became americans so they're sort of you know out and they move into this place and then they come out and they're Americans and that that was critical uh, in the history of of our country that work an immigrant country and how we all became Americans was by our experience or interactions with uh, the frontier. It's kind of a creation myth in a way. It is. Yeah. Well, very and I was and I was thinking about pilgrimage, you know, as a site of like of religious devotion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, and for some people, you know, the John Muirites in us, you know, it very much is kind of a, a you know, a, a sacred thing. But in American history, we also talk about civic religion and the the religion of American government and American society. And I've never linked this before, but you know, the act of going out and camping, or or even this whole Turner Turner's idea of the wilderness and the frontier being what being our creation myth and what made us are what we are, that is kind of part of civ- our civic national religion, isn't it? It is, very much so. And, and uh, uh, for instance, in the uh, people who promoted, um, Clinton Clark in particular, who promoted the creation of the Pacific Crest Trail, was particularly concerned about the loss of the wild and the frontier. He didn't call it the frontier frontier, but he it's clear he's concerned that American culture and society and civilization is going to go into decline. 
unless uh, people, young people in particular, are able to go out and re-experience or again experience um, the frontier, uh, you know, lifestyle of being a pioneer and roughing it and being tough that way. And so I think that's exactly right back to your point, which is this is somehow part of our kind of civil uh, culture and religion in a way. So it's patriotic. Camping is patriotic. It makes us it more is. American. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll, I'll write Jim Gaffigan a strongly worded letter about his unpatriotic uh, <laughs> views of, camp, of camping. Um, what about um, – talk, talk to us then. I mean you mentioned the, the creation of the Pacific Crest Trail. This is from one of the – actually, I think it's the last chapter before your epilogue. You talk about backpack, backpacking as a very – very specific kind of camping and one that i think i have always viewed that does fit more into kind of this pilgrimage idea backpacking doesn't just pop up in the 20th century you know this you talk about some longer traditions of of, of tramping and knapsacking around right mm -hmm. what, what's what's the long history of this so uh shortly after murray wrote his book in 1869 uh, a guy uh, a, a Somebody who is writing tourism books, John Batchelder, wrote a book in which he uh, encouraged people to go camping. And in that, he talked about the three basic modes of camping, which were uh, on foot, what we would call backpacking, uh, on a horse, and uh, on a uh, wagon drawn by horses, which today would be automobiles yeah. sort of thing. So that's 1874, if I remember correctly. So right from the beginning, and he talks about uh, backpacking. It's it's uh, the best and most authentic experience of the three, uh, because it is the most, but it is also the most challenging. And uh, he encourages for young people in particular, probably going to enjoy it more than older people. And uh, so right from the beginning of uh, of the idea that there are modes of camping. Backpacking is, is thrown right out there. It's not new uh, by any means, but it was undoubtedly more challenging in uh, 1875 than now because the technology of it was, you know, very simple. The yeah. equipment's heavy and everything weighs a lot. But it, it's, uh, uh, it has been a consistent uh, a mode of camping. Its numbers uh, were never and, and even today are not tremendous compared to the other modes of camping but it is also the mode of camping that today is undergoing the least loss in participants hmm. it, it's staying steady you know because i think that authenticity of of like uh, what's the what is the action we're trying to mimic that action is being a pioneer pioneers had to walk right they didn't get in a car <laughs> or yeah. something. That's what tourists do, uh, sort of thinking. And so I think uh, it's uh, this goes back to this idea of pilgrimages, the idea that you are on uh, the path. The along pilgrim path, right? Yeah. The, the pilgrim path, and, we, and there's a long tradition <laughs> wow, of that, yeah. too. Pilgrim's progress and all of this. But you're on the path to uh, that that was walked by earlier generations. And so you have a you are a member of uh, something much larger than the immediate moment or even the people that are around you. It stretches 
back in time to the pioneers, back to the beginning of America. And I think, you know, this this kind of imagery and language is, you know, hinted at and tossed out casually. And I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who come out and say, hey, you can be a pioneer just like they were in 1855 by backpacking. Nevertheless, they talk about, uh, you know, uh, it being an authentic experience and get into the wild and the wild will shape you and yeah. this sort of thing. Well, I mean, a little sidebar in in the Mormon faith tradition, there is there, there are these pioneer reenactments yeah. where youth go out on treks and they dress up in pioneer clothes and they do try to literally go and re- kind of recreate this experience. And, and it's for some of these very reasons, because then there'll be some kind of special spiritual experience right by by recreating the sacrifices and the struggles of of pioneer ancestors uh, which is very explicitly tying it to pioneers but the, the rest of backpackers or people going out and roughing it i don't think they have you're right they don't have that as explicit of a of a connection but so no. do you do you see are there are there people throughout the camping movement that are making this direct link between in, in a way the more that you sacrifice in terms of you know, modern convenience and so forth, the more that you get out of this pilgrimage experience. Or when you return home, you're going to return home more changed in direct proportion to how much of home you left. I, I, the only person that pops into my head that I can say ever did exactly what you're talking about is uh, Horace Kephart. And he's writing at the beginning of the 20th century. So, it, you know, it's 100 years ago. I don't know of people today who say that, but Kephart certainly did, and he's still in print. He was uh, – he's uh, one of the books that the Boy Scouts uh, still will encourage scouts to pick up a copy of and whatever, and you can buy his 198 book, uh, Camping and Woodcraft, today. I may well have read that as a kid. I don't know. <laughs> you may very well have. And he talks about this. He talks about it being a, explicitly a frontier experience uh, about, you know, this is what Daniel Boone would have done mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, and then does say he dismisses people who are using what he considers too much comfort making equipment and says they're only undermining the value of camping. Mm-hmm. You know, they're reducing what it could be. And that then the best way is to get out there, be on your own, because it's about what the pioneers gained in this experience wasn't new territory. What they gained was personal experience and, a, and an ability to be able to handle themselves uh, and feel comfortable and be independent. Yeah, that was the real value. That's the value. And that's something you have to gain yourself internally. It's not something external. So, well, I remember as a young Boy Scout, there was some organization or order or something that I was being inducted into. And part of that was kind of this very ritualized process that we had to go out camping by ourselves in a tent all by ourselves. Um, I think there was like a vow of silence and there was maybe fasting involved. But it was all these very ascetic things, you know, of um, stripping away all the conveniences. And then in the middle of the night, they pulled us out of our tents and there was some horribly culturally appropriative ceremony or something in the middle of the night. But it was trying to kind of, I think, get at this um, kind of, you know, manipulatively manufacture this kind of ex- experience so that we would then, I don't know, emerge from the woods mm-hmm. as, as men as, instead of boys or something along those lines. No, I think, I think again, it's, it's, it 
it fits the whole larger idea of you're you're leaving your regular place we're putting you in a special place one that we revere or we you know we're taking you there on purpose because it's a it's a, you know power filled in a way uh, and and then after the experience which in this case is a little more ritualized. When you go back, you're going to be more, like you said, you maybe go in a boy, you come out a man, whatever. But these sorts of things, these are, um, I think camping, you know, supports this kind of thinking. It's yeah. not what everybody is doing consciously by any means, but uh, it's just runs through how-to books and advertisements and, and stuff like that. They keep touching this imagery and this sensibility of like, uh, you know, the city, city's great, but the city's going to make you weak or it's going to drive you crazy or make you ill. And the place to, uh, kind of the anodyne to all of that is, uh, to go out into the woods, uh, get some, get in there and, and be discomfortable to some degree and you'll come back a better person for it. Hmm. Well, let's take this, your third kind of big theme, which is in a way it, it's everything that we've danced around and not talked about, and that's your theme of technological change and how camping has adopted and reacted to different kinds of uh, of technology gear. Um, the, the biggest revolution you note is that of uh, the car, motor camping. Mm -hmm. And I think along with everything that comes after it, it kind of introduces a new kind of experience that more so than other versions of camping allows people to get away from everything we've been talking about, right, about pilgrimage or having some kind of experience and just allowing people to go out and maybe turn it into more of a sport or um, just kind of go out and have fun, not go out to have an experience um, or to cleanse your soul or to, you know, escape the city, but just to go out and have a good time. Well, uh, technology... Uh, this is the this again is one of the ironies at at the the core of camping is that although it's an escape from the modernized and modern modernizing world um it is uh, facilitated and uh, comfortably facilitated by technologies that are part of the modern world at, like you say the automobile nobody invented the automobile for uh camping but campers took it up very quickly, uh, and it was promoted by early campers because, as you were saying, it it uh, makes it easier for you to get to where you can have that experience of uh, the non-modern and uh, move back into the natural world sort of thing. When it leads to non-campers taking it up, right? And it takes – yes. Right. And it democratizes it in, in many ways. I mean you, you talk about um, – I think it was – the Richards are they the ones who went on that kind of a huge tour of the West um, pre-car, um, and and you gave like the numbers of like how much this trip cost them. Yeah, this is Mary. Oh, Mary Crahor Bedell. Oh yes, I yes, think yes. It's the Bedells, yeah. The Bad Bedells, and it this was not something that many Americans could afford to do before the car, right? It was an incredibly expensive undertaking. Oh um, yeah, and so oh. the the car democratizes that and allows all kinds of non-campers to kind of take up the take it up in, in an affordable way and it's it's it, it creates attention on the hand of uh on the one side you have people who as you were saying see this as a great democratization of camping and so as i mentioned in the book 
some uh, reporter, I can't remember whom is, I believe, at Yellowstone and marvels at uh, there's a somebody driving a, a very expensive automobile camp next to somebody who's driving a very inexpensive automobile and they're sitting together eating dinner. Yeah, and yeah. Healthy are learning what the working class are like and vice versa and discovering that, in fact, we're all Americans here. You know, this, our sections don't matter. Our classes don't matter. We're, uh, you know, all Americans. And at the same time, though, you have other people whose response is, look, this is letting anybody come in here, and that's ruining the, the experience. Riffraff. <laughs> yes. I mean, and we've all so, been in a campground where there's that one Winnebago down the way blaring loud music at 11 p.m., right? And we're sitting there saying, oh, they're ruining my camping experience. What are they doing here? They belong back <laughs> in the city with their loud music and uh, <laughs> and whatever else. Yes. So it's a tension. I mean, and it again, again, that tension remains. I've had this the experience you just described. Uh, and you were never with, the one with the loud music, right? Uh, not me. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> not that I would admit. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, but on the you know, it's it's been both seen as the automobile and a lot of technology has been seen as both facilitating more and more people who could not have done it at one time. But at the same time saying it's ruining experience by letting all of these people who don't understand in, which which just goes back. That even happened to Murray, you know, when the very mm -hmm. first amongst the very first rush of people into the woods are women. Right. And Kate Field being one of them. And and uh, a certain, you know, a certain group of men are deeply upset that, oh, my God, there's women in the woods now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one thing, one interesting outcome of all of this, uh, the, at least with the introduction of the car, was, you know, more and more people go out and they're, you know, they're there at Sequoia and they're enjoying that, which is great. Mm -hmm. But you also kind of lay out the, the degradation of these natural places and that it becomes a kind of a garbage dump. And I've always, you know, I've always teach my students, you know, during the New Deal, the CCC was out there building lots of campgrounds and trails and so forth. I didn't, I never understood that. Part of the reason why in the 1930s there was this huge push to go out and build campgrounds is because they needed to have carefully managed, carefully planned campgrounds to save these places from being overrun by cars and campers, right? Yes. Yeah. The, Can you tell oh, us a little bit about, about – is it Meineke, how you pronounce his name? Yes. Uh, yeah, Emilio Pepe Meineke, E.P. Yeah. Meineke, who everyone, for the same reason you just said, just called him Doc. Doc Meineke, uh, yeah. <laughs> just Doc. Um yeah, uh, the, the, especially the, the, uh, forests in, around, uh, the giant sequoias at Sequoia National Park, the areas in there, they were just overrun with campers and, uh, the trees were suffering. And, uh, they called Meineke, who was a plant pathologist who worked in San Francisco for the Department of Agriculture. They, the Park Service asked him to come and, uh, consult for them. And he basically told them, You've got to stop this. These campers, you have to get them away from the trees. You're gonna, the, you're damaging the trees. And this and several other, uh, consultations by him led him and, uh, both the California, or the, the National Park Service and at least the California State Park Service and perhaps elsewhere too, <clears throat> to an institute a new design for campgrounds, which previously they didn't really have one. It was just sort of, Catch as catch can, yeah, and and that was okay because they didn't want to interfere with right on the on the frontier. There was no regulation, uh, but we 
they moved past the need for regulation because they were causing terrible uh, degradation of the of the forest and stuff. So uh, Meineke came up with a modern auto campground, which is one-way loop roads and numbered campsites and water in certain locations and toilets in certain locations. Yeah, even how like the um, the camping pads, like where you pull in your car, is at an, an acute angle to the one-way road that you're driving. Like even even that part of the design is in his original drawings. Yes. Um, and what I thought was interesting is, so that, I mean, that's what is then built throughout the 30s. And a lot of the campgrounds we use today are campgrounds that were built in that very time period. But even campgrounds that have been built in the decades and decades since basically follow that exact same pattern, don't they? Absolutely. Uh, here in California, uh, you can go to the California state parks uh, and many of them and newish ones who've had their campgrounds put in in the last 15, 20 years, they use the exact same pattern. Still one-way loop roads, the angled uh, parking spur, yeah. uh, table sitting, you know, there, the fire, ring. the fire ring, all of these sort of things. It's a still this, this, yeah. I mean, he, Meineke, without most of us ever knowing, has shaped our experience of the natural world if we're campers. Yeah, I mean, you include a couple figures, you know, these these drawings from from some of those early reports, and it is, it's remarkable how little has changed. And you even bring up some of the debates about, you know, how people want to be, they want to be close to where there's that water spigot and close to where the bathrooms are, but not too close. And I mean, I was talking with my wife after I read, after I finished your book, I was like, I, you're not going to believe this, but like those exact debates that we have as we're trying to pick a campsite, people were doing the exact same discussion, you know, in the 1930s, nothing has changed. <laughs> no, no, I've had and I've had that with my wife too. Really, if you have a choice of several sites, it's like, well, this one's you know has a nice view, but it's awfully close to the toilet, so yeah. whatever, you know. But this the, other one, the other, other one's too far, so that middle of the night trip to the bathroom with the kids is yeah. going to be long and cold, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. How does uh, the how does the trailer changes? The, the automobile has a huge impact, really unique impact. Lots of developments and kind of the activity of camping. Does the trailer change that dramatically? No, I think it extends it, actually. Um, I think the the trailer makes it easier uh, for yet that many more people who would not have considered going camping uh, to take it up. Um, and and going and first the tent trailers uh which are a bit difficult but a, an obvious and easier transition uh than you might think to going immediately to some hard-bodied trailer but it looks like a tent only it happens to be on wheels and then uh you know by the 1930s uh those hard-bodied what we would think of today as uh standard trailers are basically they dominate the market so and then eventually airstreams and Airstreams come along, and yeah. uh, and and uh, again, uh, Southern California, wh where I live, was one of the centers of trailer development, and the other tying this all back to technology was around Detroit. Ah, yeah, the auto industry. Because of the technology that makes automobile and truck bodies, it's the same technology that makes um, trailers. 
mostly. And in Southern California, we have an, an aerospace industry, and the technology that made monocoque uh, aircraft is also the same technology that Airstream adopted in their trailer design. So you have this this technological transfer Fascinating. going on. Yeah. So. What about the technology? I mean, so we talked about the backpacking world being, in a way, maybe the one that's trying to to eschew, you know, all of this, all this technolo- technological change and so forth. But, um, I mean, we had some friends who were just recently saying, hey, do you want to come backpacking? I was like, oh, you know, we don't have the gear um, like I used to, and I can't afford to buy new backpacking gear because it is so darn expensive, at least for the nice stuff, right? So even this form of camping, which is maybe the most stripped down in aesthetic, is for, for many so tied to, you know, Gore-Tex everything and ultralight this and that and do you see how, how do you how do you see technology changing that backpacking world? Uh, I, with their um, earliest backpackers, do not have uh, equipment that is very specialized, you know, and aimed at this. So, like you're saying, you you know, you now have a backpack and freeze dried food, and it's sold to backpackers and made for backpackers. Earliest backpackers, they just have to take things out of the house, whatever they have, blankets. Uh, some clothes, uh, uh, some coffee in a bag, uh, these sort of things. And backpacking has pretty much always had a limit, and that is 40 pounds. Yeah, what you, what you can carry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's like that's pretty much it. Uh, and earliest backpackers, for them to hit, they hit 40 pounds easily, and um, they wouldn't be able to let, stay out very long. Three, four, five days was probably common to make it to a week would have been a bit of a stretch uh, to be able to eat, you know, to carry enough food to be able to survive because it's all just so heavy. Although uh, more of them extended that, you know, by hunting and fishing than I than we do today, right? Oh, totally. Absolutely. So they could, they could extend it by procuring food in the wilderness, whereas we extend it by freeze drying everything, right? Yes. Yeah. But uh, it was, you know, it was still a bit of a challenge. But then, uh, just like, uh, although not as obviously as the automobile, uh, technological innovations, uh, you know, uh, textiles, textiles that just keep getting lighter and lighter, and framing materials uh, getting lighter and lighter, and freeze drying foods, these things uh, make it so that that forty pound. Uh, pack can contain materials that can take you through more kinds of seasonal change or weather changes, more kinds of of rough conditions, more and allow you to be out for longer and longer periods of time if you wish. Yeah, I don't remember what the figure was from 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 a like a Sears and Roebuck catalog or something, but one of these. I was it was late 19th century, but already they were advertising these. It was like a mess kit, right? Where the canteen and the pot and the silverware and the pan, everything kind of all collapsed into a really compact uh, form. Uh, I'm flipping through the book trying to find it, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah. Was, I was surprised like how early, you know, there's already an industry of trying to, oh, here it is. Um, the patent sportsman's kit from 1875. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I mean, this is only uh, six years after Murray and already there's an industry trying to show you, look, we, you can pack your entire cooking everything into this one little package. That's right. Um, 
and it'll it won't take up much space. Yeah. It's and it and it mimics all the ways of cooking and and mecha- mechanisms you're used to using. But we've designed them so that they all sit inside of each other and fill only this small space. Yeah. I mean, for me growing up, our camping equipment was mostly just old equipment from the house. So it was just the old set of silverware and gross cups that you just now brought camping. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember having much specialized gear. But uh, my wife oh, well, and I, we're, we're talking about maybe buying a small, a really small trailer. And uh, we recently got some new silverware and she was about to pitch the old silverware. And I was like, no, don't do it. Don't, don't throw it out. That can be our camping silverware. And she just rolls her eyes at me. <laughs> <laughs> that can be in the, we can just leave it in the trailer, all of our old stuff. You know? <laughs> well, this is what people at the very beginning of camping uh, had. That's all they had. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've pointed out uh, in talks repeatedly is people have to understand those very first people, they they just had to take a frying pan, which was cast iron uh, with them. You know, if that's and this stuff was very heavy and awkward and not at all designed for camping. And so you it's easy to understand why camping is not nearly as popular as uh, before the auto as after. Because the automobile makes it so much easier to take all this heavy stuff from the house. Yeah, that entry point is the, the bar is lowered, right? Yes, for it what is, it takes to get out there. Dramatically lowered, uh, and uh, so yeah, it's a, that's why it's such a transition. What's your take on modern glamping, like this like idea of glamour camping? Oh well, I think it. I, I, I've seen pictures of people doing that in the 19th century, basically doing the exact same thing. Very high, uh, you know, very expensive, very uh, uh, luxurious forms of camping. Uh, and you could do this. You could go to uh, Yellowstone in Yosemite, and, and they had these fancy tents, which uh-huh. we still have tents, but they're not, to our eyes, they're not as fancy as they were if you'd have gone to them in 1880. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I just take it as... <laughs> I don't know. I, it's an easier way, and it's I, I don't know, bit a way to uh, also have some distinction, you know, from others. Oh, I mean, uh, there, yeah, there's some class considerations here, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've noticed popping up around a lot of our national parks here in Utah. Um, these like they market themselves as like uh, like like some un- under canvas. It always has the word canvas in it, and it's these kind of swanky canvas tents with you know, platform beds in them and electricity and Wi-Fi and, yep. um, but it's, it's kind of being marketed as, a, as, yeah, you know, come out and you can still have all of your modern convenience and, and, and almost, almost an idea. It, it's almost kind of an, an elite, an elitist, um, the way it's presented is at least the way I've always seen it is like, don't be like that riffraff that's out camping in their own tent on the dirt, you know? Like you're above that, you're better than that, and come and glamp, come and glamp under the canvas and under the stars with us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, and I'm reminded of uh, even be, if you even if you step away from the even the class issue of it of all of that, I'm reminded of a book, uh, a famous book from the 1920s called "Roughing It Smoothly." You That's know, a great title. So, it is a great title. It's one of my favorites of all the books I've read for this project. It's this whole idea of like, yeah, you can get out here, you can be in the wild, you can be with a canvas tent, 
But there's no reason in this case of glamping why you shouldn't have Wi-Fi, you shouldn't have electricity, you shouldn't have table service, you shouldn't have whatever, all these other things. Because, but you're still roughing it. You know, although, you know, I think quite smoothly, <laughs> quite smoothly yeah, and, and most campers would in the past and the present would roll their eyes at you. Yeah, <laughs> but that's also kind of elitist as well. Right. That's us saying oh, how, how inauthentic of them. Right. Totally. So every, everyone's looking down their nose at everyone else for not, not camping are. the right way. Yeah. And they and they advocate very strongly for their own positions. Yeah. Well, in conclusion, you know, if you. If uh, an average American – I don't even know what an average American camper is. Well, that's kind of a silly thing after everything we've talked about. But, um, you know, if someone is to pick this book up, say not a historian like myself, somebody who, who loves camping, what are you hoping they walk away with? Oh, that they understand that um, uh, that there's a lot of people before them who've done exactly the same thing, and there will be a lot of people after them doing exactly the same thing, that there's – uh, more to this than simply going out and having a good time, which is I, you know, certainly have no intention of stopping that because I, I get uh, after writing this book, I still deeply enjoy going camping. It hasn't altered my opinion of camping, but I'd like people to understand that there's a richness um, to uh, camping and uh, and the experience of camping and why camping that most of us never have to consider. But if you have any interest in history and um, meaning and things like this uh, that you know here's a here's a place to go and learn a little bit about all of that uh, in terms of something you like to do that's exactly what I got out of it as a historian and a camper um, and I, I was just struck over and over again that no matter what point in the story you're you were saying so much of it was my exact experience of growing up you know kind of in this modern age uh, ah, so much good. has changed but so little has changed it was kind of fun to see myself and, and the debates I had with my scoutmasters or with my wife today, you know, <laughs> happening 150 years ago. That was a lot of fun. Yes. Um, well, thanks for thanks for joining us. What um, lastly, what, what are you working on next? What what can we expect next from you? If oh. and I, I don't want you to to um to spoil any surprises, but oh, I'm looking into. Uh, well, I have several. Uh, follow-ups on the book on heading out uh, about, uh, for instance, um, the uh, uh, four campers that were famous in the 1920s, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, um, Harvey Firestone, and John Burroughs, the Vagabonds, uh, their camping trips. I think people would like to know. It, it represents in a lot of ways how universal camping was in many ways amongst Americans mm. that these four immensely well-known and rich Americans also camped uh, in the 1920s and that even the president uh, came and joined them. Harding came and joined them on the campsite because mm. uh, it was so central. But I'm doing mostly follow-ups on heading out at this point. Great. Well, we look forward to it. Hopefully, they'll be award-winning, um, as this one was. And, oh, thank you. Uh, and hopefully, we'll, we'll see them soon. Okay. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else at the podcast. So if you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Red Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions 
not just about the podcast, but about the Red Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.